Southern Soul Livestream is a weekly talk show and music hangout where the hosts learn your name and just might remind you of a favorite relative. We spotlight fascinating people, discuss current events, and pay special attention to lifting up generations. So if you want to know more, learn more, be more, or just be, Southern Soul Livestream is the place for you. Join us every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Just log on, kick back, and experience the eclectic vibe. Check us out at soullivestream.com. First, I want to say thank you, Katie, for the nice icebreaker. And yes, you know, I was looking for a tiebreaker. Anyway, I'm glad we're not giving out awards anymore. So I guess it doesn't matter, right? Oh, well. So, (laughs) you know, it's an awesome week this week because this is the first time we've done somewhat of what I'm calling a two-part series. Last week, we got to speak with Mrs. Bonnie Bracey Sutton. And she took us back through the history of education during the time from, you know, post, you know, after schools, you know, integrated to in the 80s and the challenges in the community building that schools and communities did. And she challenged us in the age of technology. She says teaching needs to evolve. Teachers need to evolve. And parents need to understand the possibility. This week is a two-part segment that gives us an opportunity to dig a little deeper. Dig deeper into what many of us have learned that during COVID and after COVID, we began to see some nuances for the children and the families that we knew had already been affected. We began to ask the question, what do we need to do for our children? How can we begin to provide the resources and support for our children? So this week we have an awesome panel led by Mr. Dr. Rudy Jackson Jr. In addition to some awesome educators. And Dr. Rudy, I'm gonna let you educate your team, but thank you all for being here. And I'm gonna be in the background. I'm gonna be listening for the questions that come up in chat. And as we get ready um, to go into discussion and q and I'll pull those questions out of chat. So Katie, um, we'll just tag team that and looking forward to tonight. Calvin, thanks so much for the introduction. Uh, I think we've all really, really excited to be here coming off last week's uh, great show. Uh, We appreciate you opening up your space to have this conversation about education. We're all parents, we're all educators. And uh, we could talk about education every day of the week, uh, but we are really appreciative that you brought this conversation to your show. Uh, I get the privilege of introducing uh, four great panelists. These folks are all experts. These folks all have experience in education from pre-K all all the way up to higher ed. Uh, And I know sometimes uh, introductions can be a little long, but we have very, very short uh, introductions, uh, but this is very important to understand Uh, who everyone is, what their background is, and what kind of expertise they have. So I'm going to start with a brief introduction of everyone. So let me start uh, with uh, Mr. Uh, Yuffie Dow, who is the founder of the Idea Farm Academy. The academy serves underrepresented individuals in the greater Atlanta community by providing programs to close the digital divide through STEM-based curriculum. For more than 20 years, Yuffie has 
educated pre-K through college students in settings ranging from Title I schools to facilities with juvenile offenders. Yofi transitioned from education to entrepreneurship and found his passion in the nonprofit space, helping people discover and monetize their passion by use of technology. He created the Idea Farm Academy to answer the question all great ideas start with, what if? Our second panelist is Ms. Lisa Ellen Rice. Uh, she is an educator for 26 years, currently works as the career and technical education instructional facilitator in Charlotte. She began her career as a science teacher in both middle and high school. In 2007, Ms. Elam Rice became a national board teacher, earning her certification in early adolescent science. In 2009, she earned a master's of education in curriculum and instruction from the University of, Charlotte, University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Her most recent educational achievement was in 2018, earning her principal's license through the School Executive Leadership Academy at Queens University of Charlotte. With ebbs and flows in education, Lisa's passion as a teacher is driven by the success of her current and former students. Lisa strives to guide all students to become their best version of themselves, both professionally and personally. Our third panelist is Sydney Randolph. Uh, she's worked in early education for over 10 years and is currently a parent educator for Detroit Early Head Start. Sydney holds an undergraduate degree in education from the University of Michigan and a master's degree in public policy from Walden University. Sydney serves as a community liaison, workshop leader, and volunteer coordinator for several organizations in her hometown of Detroit, Michigan. In her current role, she helps parents and families pursue their personal goals while they help their children, birth to four years old, achieve their birth to four years old and achieve their, develop, their developmental goals. Sydney strives to create a future in which families of historically underserved communities proactively pursue early education opportunities as a vital component of their children's development. She's committed herself to helping both parents and the village that supports them truly grasp the importance of the first five years of a child's life. And our final uh, panelist is Mr. Amir Billups. So after many years as a consumer retail manager, Amir decided to pursue his calling of becoming an educator, following in the footsteps of his parents and grandparents. Amir has worked for 15 years as a middle grades mathematics teacher in Fulton County Schools in Atlanta, Georgia. He holds an undergraduate degree in mathematics as well as a master's degree in educational leadership. His passion for education involves leading students to take keen interest in mathematics, particularly those from underserved and underrepresented populations. Amir has worked with students in and out of the classroom by being heavily involved in various after-school enrichment and mentorship programs throughout his career. He's a member of the Georgia Association of Educators, his local school governance council, and leads the Fellowship of Christian Athletes organization on his campus. And he enjoys barbecue football and spending time with his wife and three daughters. So in what, five or six minutes, you have a good sense of the folks who are in the room, the people who are gonna provide their insight. We're gonna share some resources that we have. And we've taken the time to really try to find out what we could give to you all that would be most meaningful in the first 30 or 40 minutes. But we also wanna have an open dialogue 
in the second uh, half of the conversation. So as you hear us go through some questions and give our feedback and expertise, please take notes, please put notes in the chat, uh, or write them down, because once we finish, we're gonna look to you because we really don't know what you need until you tell us. And so we are gonna be open ears. We're not gonna just talk at you. We wanna have a conversation with you. So with that said, we're gonna have uh, a series of questions and two of us are going to lead on each question. And then as the conversation uh, unfolds, others may jump in, but we'll have two leads on, on the first question. And so on the first question, our two leads are gonna be Sydney and Lisa. So here's the first question. So we have fragmented pockets of success throughout our communities in regards to students thriving and achieving academic success. If we're going to make success more universal, we must acknowledge that parents and family have a significant role to play. And as I've mentioned, all of our parents, all of our panelists are parents. So for our panelists, what are the two or three things that you do with your children for the purpose of their development as good students, effective communicators, and strong leaders? So Sydney and Lisa, would you start us off? Okay. <laughs> so this question uh, is pretty close to me um, because when I was in undergrad, my undergrad program, my babies were little. Uh, so I used them as like my little guinea pigs. I always say that. So everything that I soaked in in my undergrad program, um, I utilized it on Zachary and Zoe. From the time they were born until now, two things that I make sure that we stay focused on is open communication and keeping a schedule. Those two things uh, seem to be the best for our household. And those are two things that I actually utilize with my clients as well. So making sure that our children actually have a voice, think about their response, think about what they wanna ask um, and give them options. Uh, not all options are bad options. And I know one thing in our community is we always say, you don't need to have the last say so or what I say goes. Uh, so I try to make sure that everybody that I communicate with as far as my clients go, that we understand that children want to have a voice. If we give them that voice, it makes life so much easier because then we know exactly what they want to say. Keeping a schedule makes my life easier and also makes my children's lives easier. Uh, it doesn't have to be a strict schedule, but we also make sure that we work on the schedule together. So that way, you know, and you're taking accountability exactly for what your schedule is and what you have to do, whether it's in the morning, the evening, um, after school activity. I think keeping a schedule and making sure that they have open communication are like my top two of what I do with my own children. All right. And to go along with what Sydney just said, communication is important. So, we, you know, a lot of times we focus on communication within the house, but sometimes it's missed with students communicating with other adults, especially teachers. And so one of the things that we started with was making sure that this, our children knew that they had a voice with their teachers. And it's not always about what you say, it's how you say it. And so whatever their concern was, you know, take it to the teacher or whomever the adult was in a respectful manner. And when they went into middle school with the age of technology and email, when communicating concerns with their teachers, we taught them to send their emails. So you email your teacher, but you CC us in the email. And as part of that email, it was always to include, please respond all so that my parents receive your response. 
So that was really big. So then we were able to see that, yes, they were being an advocate for themselves with the teachers. And so when we, they received the response, of course, we would see it as well and then be able to communicate with them, okay, what's your next step? What's the solution? Not you know, going into it, well, it's the teacher, it's the teacher, no, let's talk about what the solution is and where you, your role is in the problem. The other thing was just that, you know, when they got grades on or earned grades on assignments, whether it was a good or bad grade, we it was always, how do you feel? Like, how does this grade make you feel? And if it was a bad grade in their eyes, well, if you don't like how you feel about this grade in this moment, I want you to think about what you did or did not do to prepare for the assignment. So that was always a big thing because, you know, they come back, oh, I thought I would have done better or, you know, I don't deserve this. I should have gotten these points. Well, let's look at the assignment. And then let's just kind of talk about, all right, your role, your responsibility in this whole thing. Thanks, Lisa and Sydney. Uh, Yofi and Amir, would you like to add any anything before we move on to our next question? Well, I was just thinking, um, as far as like the open communication, a lot of times, at least with my daughters, they don't give me a lot of information. So you gotta make sure also that you're asking the right questions because, um, my youngest daughters, they're eight, nine years old, and they may think they have done an assignment, but it wasn't actually done up to par. So they that's so that's where that that I guess that um that feeling that they should deserve that should have should have gotten something else because they felt like they did it up to par, but it really wasn't quite there. And also this um verifying, you know, you know, because a few times she they told me they did it, and I had to learn as a parent, like, you know, this this coming home after work is kind of hard <laughs> and have no, and have to follow up behind them. So I just had to learn, like, I actually have to look at these things. Just can't listen to a, yes, I did it. And probably many times they didn't actually do it. Right. Or at least not up to par. <laughs> and then, and then we deal with the submission piece. They say mm -hmm. they did it and they didn't submit it or they did yeah. submit it or didn't get, and we dealt with that during uh, the virtual time. Mm -hmm. Um, Yo, anything? You're muted. I like to tell what speaking about. We drive home. We have two middle middle grades uh, children, so we drive home that being a self advocate component. Um, we we are at the point now where we explain to them that we explain to our children that we've given you guys an opportunity to enjoy childhood but you're going now further and further away from us. And so we're gonna let you realize how human you are. Uh, we're not so concerned with the mistakes. Our concern is the solutions to these issues because ultimately we want you all to be independent and able to succeed and not with us having to continue to tell you what to do because the, the ultimate goal is for you to be independent. And so being a self, a person that's a self advocate is our key thing that we talk about uh, we tell them to think twice before you speak, think twice before you do. And, um, and we say these things because the general consensus is that uh, a lot of youth struggle with communication. They struggle with um, really identifying who they are. And so we explain to them that being successful is almost as easy as just being aware of who you are, what your capabilities are, and, and then incorporating uh, 
book for success. And so that mantra of being a self-advocate, uh, speaking up for yourself, thinking about what you do uh, before you do it, you know, it's been very helpful for us and I hope it works going forward. Yeah. All right. Well, let's transition to question number two, which for me is, is, is all about expectations. And, and we're all educators and, and I, you can already tell that our expectations are very high. But let me ask the question as it's written. It says, when schools went, vir went, went virtual in 2020, parents were forced to provide a different type and level of structure and support for their children to learn. Many adults were able to see how challenging it can be to provide structure just for one or two children. So panelists, uh, everyone here is in panelists, the expectations for everyone involved in education of our students is critical to their success. What advice do you have when expectations and actions of parents, students, and teachers differ in regard to the instruction, classroom management, and communication? So the question is essentially about when expectations differ, regardless on which side it may be, uh, as we have been in a virtual environment, as we moved out of virtual environment, but as we typically see it, as it relates to communication, as it relates to instruction, and we know for many of our kids, as it relates to classroom management. So our leads here are gonna be Lisa and Amir. All right, so I'll start. So <clears throat> I think going back into the school year, um, it was a lot of everyone having to normalize. It's, it's a new normal in developing expectations of the teachers, of the students, of the parents. And so starting off, I think that, and I, as I think about the question and we talk about individualized instruction, a lot of times it is a conversation with the parent about understanding what the, a plan or the expectations are to help the student become self-driven, so intrinsically driven, and just how, what that next step, how to be prepared for that next step after high school, whatever that next step is. And so a lot of times it's the parents wanting the teachers to do all of these things, but let's think about what it is that your child actually needs and then put something in place and monitor it and see if it's going to be effective. And if it's not, then we can meet again and come up with a plan. So let's look at that data, right? As far as um, not, and not just data when it comes to grades, talking about behavior, the social emotional thing, how they deal. And so that was one of, I think, for me as a teacher, as a support staff, that really having to sit with parents and look at what school is post-pandemic, or we'll sit in the pandemic, but back in the building. Yeah, great. Amir? Well, myself, I, I learned a lot from it. I realized I had to be, um, I guess, a, a lot more structured, a lot more... Um, had, had to have a better plan. I had to give kids um, more of um, exactly where to go to get the things that they need. So I, like I had to set up areas and let's say Teams, this um, Microsoft software where kids knew exactly where this assignment was and parents knew exactly where to help them find that assignment if an, if an assignment was missing. So I just had to be a lot more structured and intentional. Um, the kids did appreciate that. And then with the parents that, you know, had a hard time keeping their kids on track. I always had a, I had that place for them to go. 
and, it, and my line of communication was always open for them. So that helped a lot. Um, the kids, you know, they gained a lot of um, technical savvy. Um, they know how to use their phones and they, they really, they figured out the computer also. <laughs> yeah, I think we would all agree with that. And we, that's going to lead us into our, our next question as we talk about not only the learning loss, but the learning gain. Uh, but before we leave that, any of the other panelists want to make any comments just about expectations? Because we all know that to whatever bar we set for our kids and our parents, they'll typically rise. But if we lower that bar, they won't typically exceed it. Uh, so any, any other final thoughts on expectations? I think I would like to just throw out a thought. Um, one of the things that initially in the pandemic that struck me um, in, a, in a way that wasn't, wasn't good was uh, the statements that went out um, that, that, that identified school as uh, necessary just to watch the kids. Um, I think that statement, as it went out, it had an impact on realistic expectations of teachers. Um, it, it, it was an opportunity for education to really tie in how parents are really necessary, um, how um, classroom management is a challenge. It was an opportunity to really to express a lot of things you talk about. But I think the voices at the time when the pandemic initially began uh, steered us in a different direction with some of these, these things that you talk about, there was an opportunity for us to really make some, uh, some amazing headway in terms of making it better, not just teachers in the school environment, but for the parents and the students as well, in terms of trying to be innovative uh, with regard to classroom management, communication. Um, you started by talking about teachers teaching differently and, and, um, and, uh, and parents having a new understanding of how opportunities abound. So that opportunity was there, but initially, I think that that, that statement really created some uh, some discord with regard to how education is seen, especially for parents. And and to that point, have you seen any of that change since we returned for for many returned to in person education? Yes, uh, you know, initially, you know, parents were we, we got to get back in, we got to get back in. And now parents are, you know, dealing with we're back in, but being back in, disruptions can occur. And these disruptions are typically 10-day disruptions. And so, like, we want them to be virtual. And so we, we are not getting in control of the problem and trying to find a solution. Um, we're not working as a team. I, I say we as in terms of a society. Uh, each individual has a power or leverage point, and it's taking the lead. And then the other group is having to respond and react to it. But you're seeing it now in the news. A lot of parents are unhappy. They have to be back, unhappy that they have to leave. And so, you know, we've got to draw a line in the sand and say, you know, our children are our investment for the future. We have to, you know, be definitive about how we address educating our children because what is occurring is learning loss. More and more, we're getting more and more learning loss and, and the children are ones suffering. That's a, that's a great segue. So that's, that's going to help me really get into this whole conversation because we've heard the term and it's been popularized, learner, learning loss, but nobody's out there popularizing uh, the, the term learning gain. We don't hear learning gain, uh, but I think the five of us know that students are probably 
and, and, and nobody would really agree with this besides the educator, but students have probably learned and gained more than they've lost. Yeah, they definitely become problem solvers. Yeah. So, so just going down that road, did, did, what, what are the specifics? Because we got to help educate. We, we can talk about it all we want as educators. But if we really want to engage parents in a way where we can use this so that they can empower their students, because when a student learns something, they don't realize they learn it. They don't have that awareness. They don't even know that they got a tool in their toolbox to use. And so how can we give the parents and the students the actual vocabulary and the concepts so that they can understand why well, I'm more capable now? Because if these students had been in another country learning a language and learned that language when they came back a year later, they would understand that. They would understand the game there. So tell me a little bit about the learning game that you all see in your students. So I think that communication is a big one. Um, when in face-to-face, -face, a teacher can easily see when students, if they have students in the classroom, how the student's working at a math problem. Mm -hmm. They can see the writing. And so they, at that point, when we were, everyone was at home, it wasn't the teacher so easily being able to look over a student's shoulder. The student had to learn how to communicate their thoughts. They had to be able to describe the tasks that they were completing. And so with that, I think the students just gained their voice. Um, they were able to maybe even deepen their understanding because if you can tell what you're doing and how you got to that end result, it's more than just rote learning. So I think that was a big one. The other one is time management. The students didn't have a bell ringing to tell them what time they had to be in class. They had to keep up with, okay, class starts at nine o'clock or 9.05. I need to make sure that I'm logged in on time to make sure that I get everything, you know, I'm there at the beginning of class. So they had to do more management of their behavior opposed to someone else managing the behavior. And I think that was really big. At least I saw that in my, my children. I would agree. Anyone else? Yes, I'd like to chime in as well. Um, one of the things I noticed, you know, providing STEM, we were unable to be face-to-face -face and we had to go virtual. And so when we went virtual, I saw things, Sears, go under. And so I saw Sears go under, I realized some things. The next thing that happened was the Apple store, the, the Microsoft store. Microsoft said, we're going to close our stores and go um, virtual. And so what I saw our children do was some of the things that these big companies either did or didn't do, and that's adapt or perish. And so our children adapted from face to face, and some uh, at a high level and some not so much, but they adapted to the concept of learning and in some instances thrived. Uh, there were no school shootings. The incidence of bullying changed in, 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 in tenor because a lot of times a teacher could easily send a child to a breakout room and avoid some of those disruptions. So, you know, I began seeing these things. And another thing that I, I felt our pandemic did for our children was it showed them that one of the most important things an individual can learn in life is how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. It, it, it'd be interesting to see kids say, I don't like going to school. When can we have a and then the first week, they were like, great. The second week, they were like, how long is this going to last? And then it became a scenario where they were saying, I want to go back. You know, it has been very rare in my life that I heard children saying, I can't wait 
to go back to but the pandemic took it away from them and they saw what absence how it does with the heart it makes it grow fonder and so i have two other things i'd like to, to talk about um i spoke about these these big companies our children learn how to operate with computers as producers rather than as consumers computers had to be used during instruction and as a replacement for in-person school because of the pandemic so they produced uh, high quality uh, work with regard to ELA or math, whatever the subject matter is, they got on their computer just like people at Phoenix, uh, the University of Phoenix, and submitted their work just like they had been doing in the university level. And so when you see these things, it was just incident after incident. I tried my best not to accentuate the negative and accentuate the positive. And those were some of the things I saw, but the most important thing that I saw our children do was to become more in touch with their feelings. They were forced to slow down, forced to deal with anxiety, forced to deal with depression. And for us as parents, we also were forced to have to confront these things. A lot of times we're just too busy. Um, but now we were in each other's company, we had to confront these things head on. And so for a lot of children, they learned, like Lisa said, how to find their voice and really get to some of the things that cause them stress and find some solutions to those stress. So it, it, to me, I feel like the pandemic is like the stock market. When it goes down, it goes down for a lot of people. But the smart investor, it's an opportunity for growth, and our children definitely did that. So, yes, please. Yes, uh, I apologize. No. So I want to first start off by saying the one thing that I know for a fact that children gained was time. Um, our busy schedules, they're crazy. They're all over the place. Um, our, we're taking our kids to school, we're picking them up, we have extra uh, activities after school. Um, and I took a moment within my own life to say, I appreciate the time that I gained with my children because I will never ever get this opportunity again at this age, at this point in time to actually spend quality time with my kids. So whether it be uh, they're online and I'm like, this is the answer, right? Because who really gets the opportunity? Like, let's be realistic. Like, who doesn't want to give their kids the answer every now and then? Uh, whether it's, hey, we're going outside and we're going to eat lunch uh, in the middle of the yard, right? Or we're going to ride bikes for recess. Like, that was the fun part that I think we don't truly realize that our kids really look forward to. So, like, my children did amazing virtually. They do go to a wonderful school. So, I think that helps a lot. Uh, and just to piggyback on the previous uh, question as well, uh, this pandemic truly showed where our schools are lacking and who is thriving. And that is what a lot of parents opened their eyes up to. I can't tell you how many parents I inboxed or inboxed me on a daily um, asking me, like, what do you do to find schools? Because this isn't working for me. Um, so now they truly understand why their children was why the children were lacking in school, because now out of school, you see head on that the teachers all over the place, the kids are all over the place, they're texting and talking during the class. I mean, that happens in school. Uh, and so I really think that the time is like the most important, because I know for me and my children, we had a ball. Absolutely. And I cried sending them back, not because I was scared of COVID. I cried because I'm like, I'm not ready for them to go back to school. I had like that kindergarten moment, right? When you send your kids to kindergarten, you're just like, everybody's crying. And I had to like decompress and say, wait a minute, these kids are going to third grade, get it together. But that quality time that I haven't had that opportunity to have with my children, it was the most important and the 
most fun I've probably had with my kids since they've been alive. I mean, we truly were able to pinpoint what we were lacking, what we were good at. Uh, I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe that my son is this funny. Like he was comical, like the whole year it was straight comics, you know? And I understood why his teacher was emailing me once a week about his comics, right? But it was that part that I could truly, truly enjoy. And that is what we have to understand. Um, we don't have that anymore. So us as educators, being empathetic for these families and understanding not only are we trying to keep our children safe, but we're now losing something that we have for the past year and a half. Right. Right. Well, I'm gonna move us forward just into our next question. And even though this question uh, puts a spotlight on students who are struggling, I think we all know that we look and advocate for students who are middle of the road and who are high achievers. You know, We don't just focus on students who struggle, but we know that sometimes Parents are coming to us when students struggle. So this question specifically asks, when children are struggling academically, whether it's because it's too easy, too hard, uninterested, or because they're having social challenges, how can parents effectively advocate for the needs of their children? And I think we have, Amir, you for you are our leads. Oh, wow. Um, I guess it's basically trying to figure out where you can go to help that child. Um, for example, with my daughters, um, we had a, my, my middle daughter, she really struggles with math, which is kind of funny because I'm a math teacher, but, and I can't help her with math because we just bump heads like that. So I, but she had a good relationship with Miss um, Combs at the time and Miss Combs was tough. I mean, but, but Naomi loved her because she was tough on everybody. She had high, high expectations. So we just really communicated a lot with Ms. Combs and she pulled her in for um, personal help sessions on teams. I mean, went beyond her duty really. I mean, when she was off work, she was getting, coming in on calls and that's just something that I find amazing that teachers do, even though I'm a teacher. It just surprises me that the dedication of teachers like myself who just do more than what I expect. You know, mm, right. so <laughs> right. and um, this also, I mean, just checking up on them, verifying, making sure that they're doing what they said they did. Um, go to those avenues that the teacher has provided for you, because like like Sydney, my daughters go to an awesome school. The teachers, they set up the program. I mean, from A to B, the kids knew exactly where to go. So I always asked them. What did you do today? And they can't say anything because they always have something to do. So they take me to the links on the website, say, we had to do this, this, and that. I said, go ahead and click on it. But I did it already, daddy. I said, click on it and there's nothing submitted or they did it and then submit it. So just, just a lot of follow-up, a lot of follow-up with you. Okay, okay. Um, with, uh, with me, my experience, um, it's similar to Amir. I, I, I taught for a period of time, and so I had opportunity to, to get an idea of what advocacy for your child or children in general um, can look like and what you don't necessarily want it to look like. And I think one of the things that you know you need to start with is just understanding that it's, it's all right to be uh, an advocate uh, for your child or for children. Um, but in doing that, you also have to kind of get an idea of what does it mean to, to, to be an advocate. 
And, uh, and that just means speaking on behalf of someone who may not have that voice or, or, or the ability to, to utilize their voice in a way to get a, you know, a, a solution that's best for them. It doesn't mean necessarily uh, being a defender of a behavior or a defender of your child, but it's an advocate. It's just you know, you know, bringing uh, focus to a voice that, that needs to be heard. And so with that being said, you want to also follow that up with speaking with someone you trust. There may be a secretary. There may be a teacher that you have a relationship with, a teacher that your child had in the past. It's best to identify someone you have that rapport with. And so they'll give you the temperature in terms of how you need to advocate for your child or for the children that you're, you're in contact with. And so with that, you know, you know, don't be afraid to show emotion, but you have to be respectful. You know, teachers, we're professionals. Um, if you go uh, to the dentist, you don't go screaming and shouting at them because you're afraid of the dentist. You know, you kind of comport yourself. And so, you know, other professions get that respect. And so when you're dealing with educators and people that deal with the children, it's okay to have emotion, uh, but you want to be respectful of the environment and those people you're dealing with. And I think those things will allow advocacy to take place in a way that works out best for the person that you're advocating for, and that's the child. I would agree. I, I know our other two panelists would say something. I'm going to jump in for this one time and, and just give one piece of feedback is that, you know, when our students are struggling, just like when we see our students hurting, I mean, when they're struggling, we're struggling. When they're hurting, we're hurting. And many times we don't want to deal with their struggling. We don't, we, we won't say to ourselves, it's okay for you to struggle. We want to make it right. We want you to get up to that uh, academic performance level. We want to make sure you have the free, you know, all the things that we want. And sometimes the issue is us. And when we have the issue with the kids struggle, we really can't help. Many times we make it worse. Uh, and sometimes we need to talk to someone else to help us help that kid deal with it because we all, we know we all, and all of our kids are going to have struggle. Uh, and even trying to plow that road so they won't have struggle many times is not the best thing. So, you know, that, that struggle piece is really good to talk with other people who have come down that road, folks who have kids two or three years ahead of you. Uh, many times what your kids are going to experience, your friends' kids have already experienced. And you get some good advice, whether it's, you know, that that person is an educator or whatever. There's a lot of good advice out there because most kids have similar issues. Um, and so I would just put that out there. And, and the flip side of that is, as much as we hurt and we don't want our kids to struggle and we have a tough time, many times we misinterpret our students when they're being successful or they're achieving. And we think that, oh, they, everything's cool. I don't need to do it. I don't need to check. Or they, you find out, then when you take that structure away, we find out that they're not able to perform and achieve to that same level without the structure. And so I think both of those are issues. Uh, you know, we're going over a little on time and we do promise, we did promise our, our audience we would get to their questions. Um, so if we've got other things on this one, we'll come back to it, but I'm gonna quickly go to our last two questions. One is about serving students. And so uh, for many of us, we do lots and lots of extracurriculars. We support student programs. We're out in the communities um, and other adults who do have kids or don't have kids may want to serve and support. And so we'd like to hear from the panelists about uh, what are the ways in which you found that other adults can support students in their educational and personal development? 
Um, I can start. Uh, one thing that actually Karen helped me with years ago was to understand what passion you have. Um, because you may have a job working in whatever field you're working in, but you may have been a football player in high school and you love football, or you may have been a Girl Scout and you just love Girl Scouts, but you don't have that time during the day to actually uh, be a part of those things. So I'm all over the place. I think you like mentioned everything that I do <laughs> in my bio, um, but I am. So I love sports. So that was one thing I'm like, okay, I love children and I love sports but I don't do it during the day. How can I do it after school? Um, so now I'm the manager of my son's football team. Uh, and I try to volunteer pretty much wherever I'm needed. Um, but one thing that's close to my heart, of course, early education is close to me, sports um, and grief. So I was able to take my grief and utilize that and say, okay, how can I help somebody else? Uh, so that is one thing that I say uh, is really, really important. Understanding your passion because it's needed. Uh, we have tons of football coaches that do all sorts of things for their everyday job, but they come in and they can really instill into these children something that they learned, that they were able to come out of the city and, and do something great with their lives. So I think it's just understanding the passion um, and not necessarily saying, OK, I'm going to throw my career away and go coach Little League football. Right. But you know that that is needed and you know that somebody had to do it for you. So I always say that about myself. Somebody had to take their time out to volunteer coach me. Somebody had to take their time out to be the leader of our Girl Scout troop. So in order for me to give back, to give what somebody gave to me, it's my job and it's my duty as a parent. And it's just as human here on this planet, we have to give back in some way. I know a lot of people are always like, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know. I get that all the time. Like, I don't know where to give back or I don't know what to do. Well, if you like cooking, something. If you like playing sports, go play some sports with some kids. And it doesn't have to be actually an organization. It could be on your block. You could yeah. go outside and, and join a basketball game or join a soccer game. Um, it's always block clubs looking for things. So I always give all the parents that I talk to so many different outlets because it doesn't necessarily have to be like, oh, I need to join an organization. It doesn't necessarily have to be where you actually give back to in your community. That's a great point, Jimmy. That's a great point. Other panelists. I was thinking, just show up. I mean, parents being present in the school hallways is a tremendous help. I mean, just we we always have mom and moms and dads show up and just, they just make copies and leave and just seeing the parents walk up and down the hall. I mean, it makes all the kids right. straighten up because they say, "Oh, that's your mom." Okay, I, that's your mom. I don't want her to that's talk to my mom. <laughs> 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 yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I definitely. mean, there's, there's, there's always room. I mean, there's always room. Just right. the presence, really. Right. Any others? Um, I'm going I'm to I'm reinforce that. Um, as an adult, you know, if you have a passion, uh, volunteer in that area. Mentor in that area. It's a great way to connect with others. Uh, the coach, uh, you know, may have a commonality. Uh, a parent may have a commonality. But it's a, it's a great way to have a more fulfilling life. Uh, you know, you tap into your passion, you go out there, uh, you give part of your life, and you get a more fulfilling life. So I'm on board with that. Tapping into your passion, just getting out there, and just getting involved. Because the more teamwork makes the dream work, takes the village. All these things as we get old, we realize that they're not just cliches. This is what we, we call those culture tags. This is real talk. 
So Ms. Lisa, I'm going to transition with you. One of the things that we all have in common is we've all either led, been a part of, or supported great organizations, whether it be nonprofits, whether it be for-profits. Um, and we were asked to identify one or two that are really doing great work uh, or just really committed to the work. And so all of us are going to share a, a couple of organizations. So would you lead us off with a couple of organizations that you want to highlight and showcase? I will. So I will start with InTech Camp for Girls. Um, my daughter, Amia, started with that camp when she was in the sixth grade after having her first experience with coding with Gidget Girls. It was an amazing experience for her. She was able, like I said, from sixth grade through high school to participate, to learn coding, graphic design. And as a result, her at the end of her freshman year, her sophomore year, she, along with a group of girls, submitted an app and won a trip to Facebook. And this was all through the mentorship of InTech Camp for Girls, started by one of my former students, Kalia Braswell. So for me, that was like me pouring into Kalia and then watching her pour into my daughter. It was amazing. Wow. And so there was a cycle there. So that was, that's one of the programs. And then another one here in Charlotte, North Carolina called Empowerment, which is really good. And notice I said her, Empowerment. So it's exactly, so it's a leadership program. The mission is to empower young ladies into leaders. And so again, another student of mine. So again, I love the cycle that I'm seeing. I'm, I see what my energy has done for my students who are coming along and how they're pouring back into my into my children. Okay. Ms. Sydney, would you follow up? Yes. Uh, so first, the first organization I would like to highlight, highlight excuse me, um, is Kate's Club. So Kate's Club is actually um, in Atlanta, Georgia. And during my time in Atlanta, I had the opportunity to volunteer for Kate's Club. And I'm smiling so big because I absolutely love this place. Um, I even go back <laughs> and volunteer okay. now that I'm in Detroit. I have gone back to volunteer at their camps um, as well. So Kate's Club is a grief organization and they help youth from ages five to 18. So if you if the children have lost a sibling or a parent or someone close to them, they take you in. They have weekend camps. Um, it, it, it's probably the most amazing program I've ever been a part of. And oh the comparisons up here, I'm just like, I just need to find something else like Kate's Club. Um, but it's it's amazing. Um, all the volunteers, they're like a huge family. Um, it helps the children truly face their grief. Um, I would say the very first time I went, and they call it a clubhouse. The very first time I went to clubhouse, probably about 60 kids who went around a circle and said, hey, my name is such and such and my dad died. And that was a shocker for me because I use the term passed away or lost my dad. And they actually make these children understand that you didn't lose anybody, right? They actually died because something that you lost, you can find. And it blew me away um, to see these six-year-old babies say, hey, my name is such and such and I lost and my, my sister died. Uh, and that was so impactful for me. I just kept going, kept going, kept going. <laughs> um, but they do so much great community work and they reach over. I mean, they're in, they're in the middle schools, they're in the high schools. I mean, the program just doesn't reach out um, in their clubhouse, but they actually have so much like 
uh, grief counseling that they do for these children. And I always am talking about Kate's Club, so I had to make sure I highlighted uh, Kate's Club down in Atlanta. That's wonderful. And, and for everybody who's on our call, know that we are going to create a, we have a, a PDF document that's going to have all of the contact information that's been shared on all of these organizations. So it'll be very easy for you to make uh, contact. Some of these are local organizations in certain cities. Uh, some others are going to be online. Yofi. I heard of this organization called the Idea Farm Academy. <laughs> Self outfit. I heard it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> in all seriousness, um, you know, we're trying, we're striving. Um, I had an opportunity to get a lot of um, counseling, mentoring from individuals like uh, KK. I just learned her new nickname, Miss uh, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I got a lot of to trying to the organization to be sustainable because if we're trying to create outcomes, the outcomes need to be something that can be sustainably created. And so that's one of the focal points that we have. And with that being said, I was exposed to some individuals everywhere uh, and every opportunity to see Smith. Uh, I, I saw this thing called SEM Link or SEM Success. Um, the schools that I would go to, they would talk about how she was there for their clients. So I know just from trying to find places that my organization can affiliate with, this is an organization that is actually doing some, some amazing things anywhere. STEM uh, activities and training. Uh, There's an organization called Pharaoh's Conclave, and uh, that is an organization that focuses on gaming. And so uh, Aaron, he and DJ, uh, 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 D. Rich, he's a member of Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated, uh, a great guy. He has utilized gaming video games to learn about coding. And he's been embraced by Morris Brown. And Morris Brown has also decided to take uh, eSports as a as an athletic um, team and also incorporate some of the to provide his students with the opportunity to get involved with coding and, uh, and that as well. Another place in Atlanta, Georgia is the Johnson uh, STEM Research Center. Lonnie Johnson, the owner of the Super Soaker, uh, battery technology. Is an amazing, undervalued, underused place. I don't care where you are, you have to make an effort to get there. They help with robotics, gaming, coding, whatever the entryway with STEM, there are people there that are trying to find an access point for you, especially if you're a young individual who's in school age. So those are some of the places that, that we really like. But the IF Academy is the top one. I would go with that one first. Yeah, start with IF Academy. Yeah. Yeah. Amir. Um, I like to mention um, FCA Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It's um faith based organization, and it also focuses on um, on character building. And it's just really a, a good organization to start in the school. It's very easy to start in the school. You just need a um a uh, teacher representative at the school that's willing to to sponsor it and be available for meetings and stuff like that. But it's very easy to run, low maintenance, and it's just really a gathering of of the kids and they and they they really run the program. Um, also, I like to go a little bit old school on this one. Um, I didn't, I didn't realize they were still around, but it's like, the, um, the boys and girls club of America. Yeah. Um, 
I, and I mentioned that because that really kept me out of a lot of trouble when I was a kid, um, especially after my father passed. Um, my mom, either she would pick me up and drop me off there after school, or that's where I would go straight after school and I would be there all day. And the guy who ran it, and, I, and, I, and it's probably much like this in the, um, the metro Atlanta um, areas, like he didn't let any trouble come in there. Everybody was welcome, but no trouble was allowed. So it was a really safe place for teenagers. And I believe it still is. Any, that's, any more? That's it. That's it. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to take uh, the, the last word, then we're going to questions. But I'm going to take uh, moderator privileges. I've got four. Um, here in Atlanta, in, in Gwinnett County in particular, in, in the north, northern suburbs of Atlanta, uh, in Gwinnett County Public Schools, there is a community-based mentor, community mentoring program uh, for African-American males and one for African-American females. Uh, it's run by a guy named James Rayford. If you go to the Gwinnett, uh, Public, Gwinnett County Public Schools website, you can find out, just Google it. The thing that's most important, because I've been involved with lots of mentoring programs, the uh, screening and training. If you want your kid to have a mentor, please uh, be mindful and ask whoever's the director what kind of program they have for screening and training. Some are very rigorous, some are not. It doesn't mean that it's going to make somebody a good or bad mentor, but we want to make sure at least they're on the same page of what the expectations are, and you want to make sure they're going to do a background check. So uh, that's one mentoring program. Secondly, I uh, spent uh, a good amount of time in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and they have a, uh, what I would call one of the best leadership programs, the Young Black Leadership Academy run by John Martin in Charlotte, North Carolina. It has really blown up in the last 10 years. Uh, they have taken people around, they're taking their kids around the world to do service and uh, they're teaching them leadership skills. So uh, many people just call it YBLA, but it's Young Black Leadership Academy in Charlotte. Uh, an online option, many of our kids need tutoring again, whether they are struggling, whether they're taking AP calculus. Uh, I came in contact with um, Dr. Um, Dr. Sessions, uh, who runs uh, Sharp Sessions. And again, all of this is going to be in the PDF, but she has an online uh, tutoring, math tutoring, and SAT prep. I've been doing college prep for a long time, since 06. This is the only SAT prep program I have found that I will recommend. My two daughters will go to this program. Um, and so she has a, a, a wonderful way of, of teaching math and preparing students for the SAT, and in particular, the math section of SAT. And then lastly, if your kid is trying to go to college, you need to see college prep professionals. The, 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 the business that I run, uh, we help students uh, get into all types of colleges, in particular top 100 colleges. I try to show them how to stand out and try to get prepared for a mission and to earn scholarship dollars. So you'll see all four of those um, th those resources, those those businesses uh, in our resource guide. So with that, we are ten minutes over nine o'clock. We are, are are dying to get to your questions. So Karen, if you would, uh, we're going to pass the baton to you to guide us into the questions from the audience members. And I'm actually going to pass it over to D. Rich because he may have something to say about the resource list out there. Okay. And to thank you too, I'm guessing. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Thank you, Dr. Rudy Jackson Jr. My pleasure. Thank you, panel. Thank you, Amir, Lisa, Sid, and Yofi. Thank you guys for giving us an opportunity to just really hear from not only educators, 
but parents from people who just can break it down and keep it simple. The good news is that we've been asked to say, hey, there's a lot of great resources that are shared during the show. Can you make sure that they're available so we don't get lost in case we can't find it in the chat? So if you check in the chat, I've posted a link and, and, and I've already taken um, the two flyers that Dr. Rudy Jackson posted and I've added that to the page. So what you can do is if you're looking for the resources shared by Sid, just scroll down, you'll see her name. The one shared by Lisa, scroll down, you'll see her name. And when I get a chance, I'm gonna link the other organizations. And also there was um, a chat that came up for um, someone who would like their nonprofit organization to be featured. We'll capture that from the text and we'll add that as well. So let's step into some questions. Um, I got a few questions. One, um, let's say came for Mrs. Bonnie Bracey Sutton. And I knew she's gonna challenge us with this question, but I'm gonna give this to you, um, Dr. Rudy. She says, can we use objectives to show progress and not just grades? Well, as somebody who teaches AP psychology, I'm always focused on objectives because it allows students to understand where we're going. Uh, I like to be able to demonstrate not only performance, but also preparation. I think Lisa mentioned that as she talked about the ways in which she is building her, her, her daughters, her, her kids, is that our, our kids got to understand that, yeah, we, we want to get 100, we want to get an A, uh, but they got to understand that there's a, there's a way to get to that. And even if you get it easily, you may not learn anything. And so objectives for me, whether I'm, I'm teaching a college course, whether it's a high school or middle school, uh, it, it is almost the roadmap of where we're trying to go. And so we may have multiple objectives, but we are going to measure your progress and your effort and your preparation, because even after these objectives pass, you're going to have to do the same things to prepare and to perform as we move forward, whether we're in a classroom, whether we're in a sport or whether you're running a business. And so for me, objectives are very important. I'm less, I'm, I emphasize the grade a little less, but I don't like to take that away. Some folks are like, don't worry about grades. Uh, our, our kids are eager to achieve. And so if, if you want that A, I'm going to push you to get that A. It's just a matter of how much learning are you going to do to earn that grade. And I want you to work hard, prepare hard and perform well and the grades will come. And it's the same way we talk about SAT or stuff like that. It's about your preparation and what you expect. How many hours a week are you gonna prepare? How many hours do you study versus having that phone in front of your face? So objectives are important to me uh, and I'll turn it over to the other panelists um, to, to speak on objectives versus or objectives and grades. Sure, so, thank, thank you, Dr. Rudy. And just had a part B of that. When you say objectives, you know, just for a parent, um, can you give us a few examples of what those objectives, it could be someone else, I just wanna kind of, you know, take it home, right? You know, I, I know the grades, right? But can you give us an example of some, what those objectives, objectives could be? So when I'm talking to my son's teacher, you know, maybe I could, you know, talk her language. Math is a great example, so I'm going to pass the, I'm going to shoot the, the, the pass over to Amir for a math. Well, well an objective is really more like a learning target. Um, target. I'm actually asked to put objectives and learning targets on my board every day. Yeah. So the learning, the learning objective for this week was students will be able to combine like terms to solve equations. So that's, that's, that's the objective. So that's, that's, that's our goal. 
And today I actually graded a test about that today. So kids, let's say a week and a half ago, they, they weren't so good at it. And I gave a test today where all the free response, there were two questions. And I had several kids who would do the entire problem correctly, get down to the last step, everything absolutely right, and come up with the wrong answer. So it's kind of like, I didn't really focus on, I focused on the grade, but at the same time, I focused on the objective. So they are able to combine like terms, they're able to solve the equation. We just got to work on fixing that last step. Instead of doing, it was, the problem was like, eight divided by four, they're doing four divided by eight or vice versa. So I just had a discussion with them personally on the objective about how you're there, but you're not getting it completely correct because of that, that last step. And that's, that's showing growth. I mean, the objective is all about showing growth and every kid has growth within their own learning. So you have a kid as a hundred percent kid as far as grades, but he can also grow. And that's what the objective is for. Awesome, awesome. Katie, go ahead. You, I think you were getting ready to jump in there, Katie. Um, I know that um, Lisa Rice was going to respond. I'm sorry. Lisa Rice was going to respond. And then we also have question. We have question from AK and uh, a comment from SEMLink, which is SEMLink, which was an organization that Yuffie McDowell actually shouted out um, during his recommendation of organizations. So I'm going to grab Lisa first and then um, AK and then Takiwa Smith. Okay. So thank you. So I want to piggyback on what Amir said in terms of sitting with the students. I think it's important to make sure that the students understand what the learning target is, that they're able to communicate it. Because a lot of time it's written in non-friendly student work version or words. And so making sure that the students are able to communicate that. And then after an assessment, requiring the student to sit down and look at what they got wrong and then actually work back through the problem because it becomes their, it's their data, it's their mastery of the objective of the standard, and they need to know the steps where they went wrong so they can fix it the next time. Because too many times we'll just say, okay, you got a 95 on a test. Well, what does that really mean? If a student doesn't actually sit down and look at that gap, that unfinished learning, if you will, that kept them from getting that 100 or that kept them from getting that B or that A. So I think it's really important as teachers and even as parents with my own children, they gotta be on a test. Okay, we need to sit down this weekend and look at what happened. What questions did you miss? And let's talk about what you can do differently the next time to prepare. Because again, with grades, we have to remember that some students are driven by grades. And so to take that away, you're leaving out a group of students. And then the other students I always think about, they are driven by relationships. So regardless of what's going on, a student will, may not do anything with you if they don't have a relationship with the teacher. And then you also gotta look at the relationship between the teacher and the parent to make sure that at home, the parent is not saying, oh, that teacher don't know what they're talking about. Don't worry about it. I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna get on that teacher and get that grade changed. <laughs> thank awesome you. thank you as rice <laughs> I, I i love those answers and they definitely um have taught me something new in a different language to communicate um before we go to another question are there any other responses uh 
Okay, so there's another question. Um, this comes from um, last name Allen. I can't pronounce the first name. Um, I would have to hear it first. The question says, I'm curious, do those of you who are public school teachers, administrators, feel that charters, charter schools are positive or negative competition? Oh, that, that was actually my question. Oh, that was your question? That, yes, that was me. That was me. My question is, after oh, so you were using like a code name or something? I think it might have said KD. Um, I had actually, yeah, so would love that question to be answered. I don't want to jump in line in front of other people, though. So we did have um, a question in the chat from Anissa, who was asking about struggling kids and struggling parents um, during this during this period. So I'll let her ask that question and let's save me for for last. <laughs> Um, good evening, everyone. So um, one of the things I'm also a parent educator, and that is not an easy balance. And I just want to put that out there to parents who are not educators. Um, it's like being, you know, if you're a minister or preacher and you have kids, you know, sometimes your kids have that same syndrome, right, as preacher's kids. It's like, oh, my parent is a teacher, so I must be perfect and all of that. Um, how do you support parents in understanding the uniqueness of their children? Like, uh, I think education is still very cookie cutter and hopefully we are gonna shift the narrative of that because everything doesn't fit every child. So even with the pandemic, some kids excel virtually, some kids suck, some kids that hybrid worked. Um, it's not just in content, right? Like. The, the path to success is not always a straight line. It's squiggly, it's all of that. And it comes with failure, it comes with mistakes. And as much as we want our children to just be okay and all right, that it is also okay um, when they do fail. What's not okay is failing and not learning from the failure. Um, what's not okay is not having the takeaways. Um, so how do you um, assist parents with their anxiety because the true heart of a parent is for their child to do their best, right? We all want kids to be successful. How do we help our parents understand and how are you within your schools changing the narrative of what success looks like, right? Like we're college and career in STEM, but what happened to I wanna be a barber or what happened to I wanna cut grass, I wanna be an entrepreneur or I wanna do things that don't necessarily require me to go to the top 100 college or HBCU, you know, it, it requires certifications. It, it may require me going to community college. What are we doing to bridge all of those gaps? Cause we have gaps within gaps within gaps, particularly in our community. So, um... I could, I'll start off because it was a, it was a loaded question. So first and foremost, um, I want to make sure that I'm saying one thing I do with any parent that I speak with regarding their children, right, is have them have a voice and let them know that the small thing that you kind of don't want to say, or you don't want to mention, it's okay to mention. It's okay to speak up, right? Because it may not be a, a something huge, right? You're like, uh, I think Amir said earlier, the kid can be doing excellent in school. It could be something small as him not socializing or her not socializing with her peers. And as parents, now all, we're speaking as educators. We're speaking as, as people that are, have been in our fields. We, this is what we do, right? So let's take ourselves out of it and think about those parents who are not necessarily looking at their children like, you're doing something different from this other child. They may not even have any other children to even reference. So that's what we have to first start off with. 
Um, so I always tell our parents, what is it that you think is wrong? You may not even think anything is wrong. So let's do a comparison. Let's do this. Let's look up these goals. Let's look up these objectives. So then that way we can see where your child falls amongst those objectives and those goals for whatever age group your child is in. So let's start with that. <laughs> um, because I know a lot of times we're like, man, even with my own son who has an IEP, it took me a long time to really accept it. And I knew something wasn't right, right? But as a parent, I was like, I don't want to admit this because it feels as if we're a failure. So we have to actually make sure that we are giving them those affirmations. You're doing amazing, mom. The smallest things are what really count. And I use that with my parents, right? It could be something as small as us listening to slow jams on the way to school, calming our children down before they have a hectic day or picking them up from school and saying, hey, how was your day? What song do you want to listen to? What could get your wiggles out? So small things like that, I think, helping to encourage the parents to truly understand their own child is what we can first start off with the question <laughs> um and then also like i said just encouraging the parents um the parents are their child's first teacher and i always say that to all of my parents it's always going to be you even though we spend a lot of time with their children you know your child best so when it comes to those like you said what happened to cutting grass and and doing hair and doing nails my daughter is like full-on girly right she is like all nails all hair at nine, she asked for flat irons for Christmas, right? And so now I see that in my child at home. I understand that this is something that my daughter may want to do. She may not want to be a teacher. She may not want to be a doctor. That may be her thing, straight doing, she is a hairstylist. Um, but as a parent, I know this. That may not be something that she can show in school with her teachers unless she actually brings it up to her teachers. So just encouraging our families to speak to their children. Encourage her doing hair. Encourage her doing nails. Hey, you want to go cut grass? Come on, let's go encourage them to cut some grass. But really making sure that the parents, that we're making those affirmations good for the parents. Because that's where it truly starts at. Because if the parents feel comfortable to talk to their children and to be their children's advocate, it is always just a trickle-down effect and the children can be just as comfortable. I, I, would, I would echo all of that. Um, one of the things I had to do as a school psychologist is basically talk to parents about student performance. So one of the most important things we learned was to, to have empathy and to try to, to the degree you could, remove the lens that you have and you bring because we all bring expectations of performance and we know that teachers have expectations. And so as we try to be empathetic by you know making sure that they have an opportunity to, to be heard and to be understood, then many times it's down, you know, parents want to, they, they want to be heard, but they want a solution. They don't, you know, most parents don't just want rah-rah. They want, they want things to get better. So, you know, trying to, and everybody's got a different style for how they help parents go through that whole process of, you know, getting whatever is out, whatever the feelings are, and then, you know, how do we try to make things better? And so I think every teacher, every administrator, every psychologist has a way to do that. One of the things I try to do is to, to try to help parents talk about how their students perform across different environments, because they may be only focused on that one area where things are slow, because I, you know, I typically don't say you, you're weak or strong. Some things just come faster than, than others. And so if you only focus on an area that's coming slower, you don't recognize they're picking up all this other stuff quickly. And there, if you really want to compare them to their siblings or to the other kids in the community or somebody else, they're killing it. But, you know, you feel in some kind of way because over here, it's a little slower. And so 
one of the things I try to do is say, you know, tell me about your son or daughter, not in this one environment, but in a couple other environments or, you know, when they were a little younger. And many times that allows us to, to, to broaden the conversation and to, to talk about other things about where they're strong um, and where they do things quickly. So those are just some of the things I do when I engage in parents, but I would co-sign uh, 100% all the things that Sydney said before me. Um, we had a comment. Um, I mentioned SEM Link to Kiwa Smith. Um, was going, had a question, I guess, or some comments just about community engagement in the sort of organizations that work with some of our educational systems. So I'm going to, Takiwa, if you'll unmute. Okay. So I do have a question. Can I ask my question or do you want the comment? Yeah, ask, ask the question, please. <laughs> okay. So this is the question, and I know I handled it wrong because, you know, I'm a person to be like, I don't care what your teacher said. I'm the scientist. I know science and math better than them. But <laughs> this happens a lot in my work and with kids who do a lot of out-of-school time learning, whether it's they're in a summer program, whether they have scientists in their network, and they'll do science in school um, or math problem. And it's not, you know, the cookie cutter way that the teacher says, so it's wrong. But if they have that scientist in their network, they're like, it's right, your teacher dumb. But we can't say that to kids, right? <laughs> and so how do you teach kids to advocate for yourself themselves how do you handle that situation? Because a lot of times the kid feels defeated and they're not good at math because they didn't do it, you know, the way the teacher said it should be done. And those who are scientists know like it, there are a lot of problems, especially math and math-based science, that there are multiple ways to solve the problem. And so I think about math, but I know there are a lot of times where kids don't solve the quote unquote right way and they feel defeated when they're actually brilliant in solving something right. Can I answer this one? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I'm over here dying. So there, there's, there's more than one way to solve a problem. You are absolutely correct because there's, there's a good and a bad way or good and a bad thing about being a parent and a teacher as was stated earlier. And so my daughter, when and she was an elementary school teacher, took off points because she didn't solve the math problem the way she wanted it to. And so I was like, I had to have a conversation because when it comes time for the test, when they take this test at the end of the year, what are they looking for the right answer or how she solved it? <laughs> you know, so I always remind, I tried, well, I did before by mistake, but you can't pull it over. You can't pull anything over my eyes as if I'm not an educator. So that's first. So let's make sure that when you're communicating to children that who are around mine, let's make sure it's correct. And so I had to remember that and I had to pull back. But the second thing, I'm also a chemistry teacher. And so I always like thought about as a teacher, what is it that I wanted for my children? So I tried to be that teacher for all of my students. And so one of the things was always, I don't care how you get to the final answer as long as you don't cheat, because my way is not the only way, because at the end, you got to take a test. And I'm not going to give you, and I was a hard teacher, because if I teach you how to do a problem, you got to get the whole problem correct, not just part of it, because that one thing at the end is going to keep you from getting credit on that test. Right. 
And so parents didn't like it. And parents were like, this is the first time my child ever got to be in a class. Well, by the end, the parent was like, thank you, because my child learned tenacity. You know, that was something that it's academic severe. struggle, that academic struggle they had not had before. And as parents, we have to allow them to have that because they don't develop those skills of perseverance if they don't go through the struggle. So Katie, can I offer this also? It's a fine line. Um, I, first of all, Ms. Smith, I really appreciate your um, being candid about I'm, the, I'm that person. It's like, I'm the genius, uh, not the person you report to in the school building. Thank you so much for being honest because that is a struggle, right? We, you know, a lot of our kids have villages full of great, brilliant people, whether they went to college or not, right? It could be the drunk uncle who just has all this knowledge for no reason that pours into them. I think what's important is when we create, we have to be more diligent as parents and as educators to create better relationships with each other and kind of come out of this, my way is better, your way is better, whether at home, whether it's home or school. So the first thing is, um, as a caregiver, as a parent, learn what the expectation of the curriculum is. It, again, I'm in agreement with there are a gazillion ways, and I'm an English teacher. So I know a lot of times the struggles with the sciences and the math because it's formula or whatever, whereas I'm over here like, well, how do you interpret Shakespeare? To, you know, we could be a, kind of a little bit more <laughs> ambiguous when it comes to some things, right? So that's always kind of a struggle. But I think the bottom line is that we all have to be on the same page for the child. And this power struggle about who's right and who's, for, it, it really is more of a disservice to the child. So first, we have to be really articulate about what curriculum um, requires us to do, what standards, I don't care where you send your child, private school, charter, we all have standards and structures and things that we must follow, right? And so I think articulating that to parents and caregivers is important. And parents, you ask them, well, what is expected here? Because I wanna teach them five different ways, but what is the way that they need to demonstrate in the classroom? We have got to do better better about our relationships because we get into power struggles. Um, and I've seen some of my colleagues and I'm like, you went up to the school clowning like that. You know better than that. I know you're a parent, but we, we can't clown um, the people who are responsible for pouring into our children, right? So let's be very careful about how we align and build relationships because we have to be on the same page um, when it comes to, to, the, to the students. Hmm. Now, now AK yeah. preach a whole sermon with that, <laughs> right? A whole sermon. Yes, we have a question from Marianne Lachlan, please. Marianne, go ahead. Um, I'll unmute you or unmute yourself, please. Good evening. I just had a question about um, about universal design or multisensory learning. So um, I, we homeschooled our youngest daughter, and uh, I noticed that I figured out how she learns best. And I was and I was wondering if they're incorporating any universal design in the classroom if that's been implemented. I know it's been talked about here and there, but I haven't heard of like a whole school implementing anything like that. They should be. 
they may call it differentiated instruction. They may call it universal design. There's a lot of different terms out there in education. But at this point, if your children um, have educators who are not speaking to all the different kind of learning styles and modalities, then as a parent, you might want to advocate for that because that is something at this point in 2021 should be standard. We should be speaking to um, how kids take in information as well as how they project information because it is unique. We all have that, that thing about us um, in terms of how we take in and, and give back information. And I would just say, I would agree with AK um, and, and being in the, in the higher ed side, you know, what that requires is teacher training. And what we're talking about is, you know, many teachers, especially teachers who have been in the field for over 10 years, going through three, four or five cycles of what we would call pedagogical approaches or instructional approaches and many times they, they start the first three days of the school year and they get their professional development. Somebody coming in there about a new uh, way to teach, whatever, they like, dude, forget this. The, we, we're really not trying to do that. So it that goes back to the relationships that AK was talking about. When we're really talking about how we're going to meet all of our students' needs. Um, and I like the, the fact that, that you've taken it upon yourself to learn your students' need. The other piece is going to be your student learning to be, you know, learn how to learn for themselves when they leave and being an independent learner. But uh, it, it's great to say that and great to say that's the expectation, but understand it, it ain't no switch. It ain't no five hour course you're gonna go to to learn how to implement effectively universal de design, differential instruction. And then the, the other pieces that we see that there's differences across uh, primary, uh, secondary, we talk about um, elementary, middle and high. I just sat in a school council meeting where the middle school instructors are now trying to give more uh, introductory or guided uh, instruction and then trying to be more of a facilitator. Well, that's great and that's a great design, but when they get to high school, that's not the design they're gonna, that's not the learning environment they're going to encounter. And so as we're trying to be better educators, as we're trying to make all students needs, uh, understand as a parent, you've got to advocate. And, and in many cases, as you support, you're really building your son or daughter's skills to be effective in every environment. That, that, that's what we're trying to do. I, I don't care, it's just like playing cards. I don't need to have the best hand. I need to know how to win with any hand. That's right. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. And, uh, and some tell people- us, if you have the information, I email my daughter's teacher, she's a senior. Mm -hmm. Every year since the ninth grade, I send an email to all her teachers introducing us or her parents I articulate what her strengths are. I articulate what her limitations are and how she learns based. She's a project-based learner. She's audiovisual. she's kinesthetic. I, I don't wait for them to figure it out or hopefully they'll give an inventory. Um, I've given her inventory. Yes, as someone said earlier, your kids are your guinea pigs, best day, hard day, whatever. Um, and so I give the teachers the information first. You as a parent, you know your kid and we are hungry for that information. Someone said earlier, you know, talk to me about how your child deals in other situations. Go be proactive, give the information to the teachers first, right? To the guidance counselor first. Um, and, and that way they can help go, oh, that's great information and they're really appreciative. And I know as an educator, I'm really appreciative because you are with your child more than I am.
And so when you can give me that information, I can go, oh, that works. Even if it's personal information, like the dog just died or, you know, we just lost grandma and give them the information first so they can tailor that support um, and what they need and also not misconstrue the behavior as just, you know, their teenager or they're just acting out and go, oh, grandma just died. So I need to pull her off to the side and, and maybe talk with her a little bit or, you know, whatever the case may be. Don't wait for the teachers to figure it out. Give it to us first. I love that approach, AK Free. You just sparked something that I'm definitely going to add to my menu. I'm surprised the number of times I've told the teachers that my son is extremely motivated by incentives and awards. And I'm surprised that after I told them, they dust off their award star system and start using it. But in my mind, I didn't realize that I needed to say that, right? But with me being an email and a template person, I'll definitely be drafting that email and getting ready for the second grade. So thank you for that one. So I'll uh, say a quick little interjection here. So I love exactly what AK said. One thing um, I think that is very important that we don't do as parents, we don't do the research about the schools that we're sending our children to. Um, don't feel as if you have to, oh, that is my community school. I'm going to send my kids to that community school because if they don't have the resources. It's just like uh, Dr. Jackson said, if they don't have the, the, the skills and the trained teachers to handle your child, or whatever situation it may be, then it's really a, a fight. I don't want you to use my child as a guinea pig. So I'll say that, right? So we say our, our children are guinea pigs because, you know, we're in school, you know, I was in school and I had Zachary and Zoe and that is what I did, right? But I personally, and in my personal experience, my children went to a school, they were rated so high. I'm like, okay, right up the street from the, from the house, we're gonna go there. Both of my children did horrible that year. I mean, we had tutors, well, everything you can think of we had. I had to make the decision to hold Zachary and Zoe back a year, which was a hard decision for me. So I did my research. I really did my research. I talked to a disability specialist. I talked to the resource room. I really dug deep and found this amazing school that now I drive about 30 minutes away from my house to go to. But it's such an amazing process. But I had to go through that process for myself. I had to realize, like, just because the school says they're good, they may not be able to handle my children, right? Um, I've switched my children's classrooms around. I thought I met a teacher. She was amazing for Zachary. Uh, but Zoe had her. And I was like, ah, that's just not what we're going to work with. And I was able to switch their classrooms. We have that authority to do that to make sure that our children are growing and that they're thriving and I think so many parents don't understand that we have that option people are always shocked like hey like you held your kids back how do you do that because I'm their parent and I knew what was best for them I've switched classrooms I've switched schools and that piece of it I think is where a lot of parents are lacking because they don't realize that you have that power these are your children you cannot play with them you want to make sure they're getting the best education, the best environment, the best they can possibly get socially, and it is our job to do that. Uh, is it possible to just give about a minute to interjection? Yeah, go, go ahead. Just so you guys know, we've smoothly transitioned into discussion time. So if there's anyone who has a question, hasn't had a chance to speak, feel free to raise your hand to bring yourself off mute. But Yofi, go, go ahead. Uh, so I taught physical education for like 20 years and out of those 20 years, 17 of them were in Title I schools. 
And so within the first week of teaching in a place that wasn't a Title I school, I saw the I saw the difference in voice that the parents uh, have um, in comparison to at the Title I schools. Uh, when I was at Title I schools, we almost had a sense in terms of leadership where they were discouraged with regard to parental involvement. Uh, um, and for me, what I realized was I thought maybe the issue is that the leadership and the vast majority of those educators don't live in that community and aren't a part of that community. And in some sense, um, don't really see the value uh, of those people in that community. And so when, they, when they're dealing with them in issues or, uh, or, or scenarios come about where parental involvement, community involvement is the key to doing it better, they, they really wanna push it back. And you see schools now more with the communities in schools, parent liaison, all these different things. And they're there in part because a lot of people in a system uh, have advocated for more parental voice because they see what parental voice and parental involvement does for schools in those more affluent communities. And they want the same type of opportunities you know, for their children. So um, when we talk about you know, speaking, up and know, speaking up and knowing about your child and, and, uh, and utilizing your voice, there's a segment of the of individuals who need quality education really in a terrible way, whose parents are in a cycle of not understanding the value of, of educators. Their parents didn't have a voice, and those kids had bad experiences, and those kids became parents, and they don't have a voice, and now their children are having bad experiences, and those communities are in the same position they were uh, when the mom went there and the grandma went there, because the leadership that continues to be there is establishing a status quo instead of a growth model that's inclusive. And so, you know, I go back to the pandemic. We have middle school students. And my son never, he only fought people when they messed with his sister. He got to sixth grade, got in a fight within two weeks with his best friend. And then a week later, got another fight with his best friend. And then a month later, got another fight with a kid that he told to stop talking bad to someone. And so it was these these things that I started seeing, I was unfamiliar with with regard to my child. He wasn't struggling academically. He was struggling socially. Uh, he was in an environment where the social environment was something he was unaccustomed to. When we got into the pandemic, it was in his sixth grade year. The virtual was something that, you know, initially he didn't do well, but they, they were able to get better at it. And so now that he's in the eighth grade, what I've told him, he's an athlete, is that, you know, you're going to probably go to high school simply for social. You don't get a chance to participate in your extracurricular and your electives, but we're gonna to try to get a virtual component for your core academics because we know for you, you're trying to figure things out socially and your future is gonna have, it's gonna have a component of your academics. So we don't wanna put you in a scenario where because you're an athlete, you're at a school and that's what they want you to do, but they're not focusing on the more important things. So we was, as parents, we realized that a lot of parents don't have that option. They don't have the ability to, to navigate a future for their child to help their child with the future. So I, I bring it right back to the point of the vast majority of parents are in scenarios where schools are the way they are. They have very little access to money. They don't tap into the village that exists around it. And so it's a great challenge that 
can be met. I think that this pandemic, again, is a great opportunity for us as parents, because of the disruption, to come in with a plan that's a benefit for our family, for our children, for our village, while that while the school system is in disarray, I don't say disarray, but trying to deal with the politics and the reality of it all, we need to come forward with the reality that we want our school to be better for our children and not just the building in the community. We want it to be a place of value in the community where our kids want to be, desire to be, and not just that need to be. And that's that's my two cents. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Yofi, brother. I, I mean, you, you inspired this comment. I think we're at a great place for closing statements, closing remarks. Um, Katie has been laughing. She says it's been one of our longest sessions, but it's been very meaningful. So thank you all, you educators, you parents and educators for sharing with us tonight what works for you and giving us a new opportunity. As you can imagine, sometimes as parents, we don't know what we don't know. And this discussion has been helpful because it begins to paint the picture of the possibilities. It begins to paint the pictures of the language, the dialogue and a potential engagement. Thankful for AK Free kind of highlighting something I had seen such as the power struggle that may exist before you get there. And I asked many people, what is this thing? What is this energy? What is this thing? But the way brother Yofi breaks it down, it lets me know that the power struggle existed before I even showed up, before I even moved to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. but navigating that and trying to find those answers and those solutions. Thank you all for the dialogue. So please, if you would, Katie, help us get closing remarks. I think we're good. Don't worry about time. People who stay long typically stay because they're interested, but um, I think this is a good time for anyone. Um, Yofi, I'm gonna make sure that your flyer gets posted on the page. Rudy, I've already put yours there, but um, Lisa, uh, Amir, Sid, um, anyone in the audience, any closing remarks? Speak up, I know each of you have something to say. So I just want just to say that, just to make sure that as a parent, you're an advocate for your child, but teaching your child to be an advocate for themselves. I'm at the high school level and something that AK Free said, well, she said that um, she has been sending emails to her child's teachers since she was in the ninth grade. So many parents stop communicating, stop being involved, once their child hits the ninth, hits high school because they think they don't have to do anything else. That's the most important time because now your child is on their way out to being an adult without having the support. So I think it's important to make sure that you can you teach your child to be an advocate, but you're an advocate for your child. Go ahead, Sid. Brad, I'm playing with the unmute button. Um, I always want to say that um, as parents, as educators, and just as parents in general, um, we have to understand it's the smallest things that make an impact in our child's life, uh, lives. And I think that that is one thing that I have noticed just being a parent myself, um, not just being an educator, but it's just the small things. Sorry that my dog's in the background barking. It's it's my time, uh, <laughs> um, but it definitely is. It's the smallest things, and we have to realize that as, as parents, you know, it's something as small as listening to a song on the way to school that can brighten your child's day. Um, it doesn't have to be some super magical potion that you come up with to make things better. It can be something as small as you walking your child from your car to the front door of the school, and I think that is what I want to make sure all of our parents realize. 
Thank you, Sydney. Words of wisdom. Amir. Hmm. Um, I guess um, as parents and teachers, we just have to realize that um, the kids that are coming to school are the best that the parents have. I mean, they're sending us their best. And we have to realize that at the same time, we need to give them our best um, through the struggles and through the um, victories. Thank you, Amir. And Yuffie. Yuffie, I see you jamming, right? Right? You gonna take us out with music. I'm over here jamming. Right? <laughs> keep, keep, keep it going, Rich. We're loving it. We're loving it, D-Rich. We're loving it. Go ahead, Yuffie. Got- this is a hard one to do now. You gotta, you gotta. I just had to say thank you, uh, Karen, for inviting me. Thank you, uh, Rudy, for moderating. Thank you, uh, DJ Data Dog for um, also in, in, in this. Thank you everybody for the panel for, for what you all said because as a parent, you know, one of the things that has made me a better parent is listening to other parents. Um, my biggest strength that I've ever come to recognize is that I don't know much of anything. And so I learned how to listen better. And so I listened to you guys tonight and learned so much and I'm very grateful for it. So thank you guys. Mm. Thank you. And lastly, thank you, Dr. Rudy Jackson. You got some words of wisdom to take us out with. Well, I don't know how wise it is, but I'll just share just a couple of thoughts. One of the things I said earlier was about, um, you know, we put a lot of focus on our kids who are struggling. Uh, just be mindful for our kids who are who are meeting our expectations or high flyers. They need our support, our attention. Many times they get left to the side um because they're doing everything we ask them to do and they, they still need our attention um the other thing i would say is, is for the kids especially over time that, that that seem to do the best in the long haul is is are those kids who develop a good sense of self who kind of know who they are and so they got self-knowledge and they they learn how to self-master they they have self-mastery and if, if they can we can get them by 12th grade to know how to master their, themselves in any environment, those kids are going to be fine. They'll figure out all the content and all that other stuff. But when they can't master themselves, uh, th- th- they just have challenges. It's harder for them to meet their potential. Um, and so I, I just try to, you know, I still let, let grades be a target. But for me, it's all about preparation and effort. And if you want to be chewed out, it's going to be about, preparation and effort, whether you're my kid, whether it's a student, whether I'm coaching you, that that's just, and we just start there. Um, and so um, those are the, the final three things. And, and again, uh, Calvin, KD, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I learn a lot from listening to smart people. I, I, I never want to be the smartest person in the room. So um, I appreciate all y'all. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.